Well, hey, everybody, it's Jean Nathan, and it is time for Crosstown Conversations. And we are celebrating today. Um, it's really not celebrating. We are noting two anniversaries. One, Camille, that hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast in um, 50 years ago on August 17th. Two, we are noting the anniversary of the first arrival of a slave ship on the shores of the United States-to-be, North America, in um, 1619 in Virginia and 1719 in New Orleans. So, yeah. Um, there are things to celebrate about the resilience of people in the face of those huge destructive challenges. Um, but celebrating is not exactly what we're going to be doing during the show today. We're going to talk about both of them. In the first half, we're going to be talking about uh, what happened with Camille and what happened with Katrina and the difference in, in, in the aftermath. And in the second half, we are going to hear from a very esteemed historian and activist, Malik Rahim, who is going to talk to us about um, the history of slavery in our state. And we'll, we'll reflect on some incredible news content that the New York Times put out this weekend that I recommend everybody to check in on, and I'll tell you how to do it. So let's get started first with two people, Paul Montjoy. Are you there, Paul? I am. Excellent. Um, who is a developer, a um, planner, uh, now retired, but he's the kind of guy that doesn't retire. Um, just like um, our other uh, person who's going to be talking about the two storms, and that's Bob Tannen, artist, planner, um, uh, creative, who has been dealing with both planning issues as well as um, um, design and arts issues. Uh, the place I want to start with this, with the two storms, is what it was like, Paul, first of all, from you. I don't know whether you stayed on the coast for the storm or left, and I want to know what you know, not in huge detail, but give me a feeling for what that was like. And then within days, within a, a week, Bob Tannen comes in from Boston on behalf of a water management firm named Metasystems to work on the plan for the redevelopment of the coast, bringing with him Mel King, a civil rights leader from Boston, uh, to work hand in glove with him in the community. So, Paul... Let me start with you because I, I want to, you know, paint this picture because I've been looking at these articles um, in the New York Times and, and, and online about uh, uh, pictures that I hadn't seen in a long time. I've seen them before, but not in a long time. And it, it was such devastation. Were you there when the storm hit? I was not. I didn't come down until later. I came down with the governor's emergency council uh, some months later. Uh so I was not here. I was here for Camille, uh, Katrina, but I was not here for Camille. Okay. So you arrive into the coast uh, about when after the storm? Actually, it was 
uh, June of the next year. Sean was in August, and I came in in June as they were trying to ramp up uh, plans and uh, and implement plans for the uh, recovery of the coast. So, so then t- it's Tannen who actually comes in soonest and sees what the devastation looked like. So l- let me start with you then for a minute, Tannen, and come back with Paul. Uh, what did that look like when you got in there a week after the storm? Well, uh, let me step back a minute. Uh, governor John Bell Williams, uh, who was governor at that time, uh, had a staff uh, that was interested in not only recovery but looking at the future risks involved. And uh, so the state of Mississippi hired Metasystems, as I, you know, as you said, a, a water resources management and planning company uh, to assist with that evaluation and the planning process. Um, Dr. Robert Burden, who was a Harvard professor of environmental engineering, led the effort, and he asked Mel King, as you said, and myself to come early on to the coast and try to assess what was going on and to meet with the leadership and with the folks on the coast, Um, and that was very soon after the storm. So the plan that was proposed. If, if I might, though, I asked a question, and I want you yeah. to answer the question. I can treat them this way. You know what I mean. Tell me what your eyes total, total saw, devast- what total, you took in when you first got there. Total devastation. Uh, Had you certain, ever seen anything like that no, before? No, no. Uh, the, 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 the bottom tier or those three counties closest to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you could see that every place that had experienced the surge, that is the, the action of water on the land, uh, was totally devastated. There was very little development uh, remaining, uh, existing development that had been there before the storm. Uh, as you went north from, from the, the surge area, the devastation declined somewhat. So, for example, in the, the next three counties north of the coast, which was primarily agricultural, you saw great, great, uh, huge acreages of trees and farming areas that were uh, torn apart, trees uh, uh, lying on their sides for miles. Uh, On the coast itself, that is around Highway 90, anything that had been uh, 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 hit by the surge of water uh, was no longer there. There were just scraps. It was a, just a, a horrible, horrible uh, experience and sight. When you first got there, you must have um, been talking with people who, uh, and, and, we, and I experienced this in, in uh, Katrina, of course, but you must have talked with people who were themselves devastated by what happened. Yeah, and, and not only that, uh, the, the leadership, uh, the mayor of Biloxi, for example, Danny Geis, who was out there trying to help his people in Biloxi, uh, the leadership uh, was really challenged by the circumstances. Uh, in talking to people who had been there, um, uh, it was, it, it was it, like dealing with the aftermath of a war. Uh, uh, people were not sure whether they would ever be able to rebuild or come back or live there. And many lives were lost. Businesses were lost. Uh, the environment was totally changed. Um, 
So Metasystems was then uh, asked to assess this situation and come up with the redevelopment plan. What were the first things that you did when you first got there? I assume we, you had to talk to a lot of we people. Drove our, our, we drove the coast where we could because the roads, the roads were in terrible shape. I-10 did not exist at that point. I-10 was under construction. So we had to actually drive on back roads to a great extent. Highway 90 was littered. Uh, with the remains of structures that have been destroyed. And boats. Uh, not, not just boats, everything. Houses, houses, even. boats, uh, all kinds of stuff was uh, littered along the coastal edge. Uh, people, people who had lost their homes and lost their businesses didn't know what to do, where to go. The state of Mississippi, I must say that, that Governor John Bell Williams and his staff uh, were very uh, active trying to, to support uh, – the folks who were there and, and, and try to assist with, with uh, the daily issues of, of surviving after the storm. So the, the, you start getting into the planning process, and, and, and how did that go? Um, you know, I, I worked with the planning process after Camille, and it was what fascinated me about it is that residents, citizens, got involved in thinking proactively about the future uh, in a way that they're not accustomed to. So there was a learning process going on that I think you can say has had a permanent impact on New Orleans. But, but in people commute. used to have the attitude that you can't do anything about things, but there was a, a, a more of a sense of being able to do something. Yeah, but, but, but after Camille, people just were so devastated. It was very hard to organize any kind of uh, uh, discussion except with the leadership, the mayors of all the 11 uh, municipalities, the, uh, the leaders of the six counties, the state, uh, the congressional delegation. Also, President Nixon showed up pretty quickly after the storm and provided, and provided some support and assistance. So uh, there was an effort to try to deal with this, but you couldn't have organized planning meetings. It was, it was really a one-on-one -on -one thing, like you would meet with Danny Geis, and then you would go down the coast and meet with somebody else. Uh, but let me get back to the plan, because the plan was important. It was probably the first plan that dealt with the potential of, of having to recognize migration away from those areas that were would likely have recurring damage, which we learn, obviously, in Katrina. So the plan had three major elements. Uh, one was that I-10, then under construction, should be the new spine for development for those areas that were devastated. Instead of building back in the surge area, the state tried to encourage people uh, to live or to to create new communities, essentially, uh, along I-10, then under construction. In fact, Orange Grove on Highway 49 is a, is a new town in many ways, even though it's part of the city of Gulfport. There were three major elements to the plan. One was recognizing migration was necessary away from those areas that had been devastated. The second point was to see if there was a way of creating a collaboration among the many communities so they could cooperate and work together rather than Which compete. had not been happening had to not, No, these, that, these yeah. 11 little communities were independent. They, there was ways uh, to, there was ways to uh, uh, save uh, a great deal of funds by having a regional uh, uh, effort for garbage collection, for, for drainage, for water service. Uh, 
in addition to that, there was a plan that we called the Seventh County uh, concept, which was to recognize that the Gulf of Mexico and the Mississippi Sound should be part of this effort to better understand the relationship between land, water, land and water. So recommendations were made. That was um, 1969. Um, uh, Paul, so you 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 pick up that plan and you are trying to um, shepherd uh, some of the realization of it, the recommendations. That wasn't easy, was it? No, and very frankly, that uh, you have to almost compare it to Katrina, but if I remember the numbers right, that's been a long time, I think the Governor's Emergency Council had something like $250 million yes. that ultimately was flowed through them to the cities and the counties to support redevelopment. Compare that to $6 billion or more for Katrina. But the, the plan was great. Probably, in my humble opinion, was too ambitious uh, without enough authority to make it happen. Uh, for example, in Katrina, they've got uh, codes now that says, you know, if you're in the velocity zone, you got to be 22 feet of elevation. If you're in a regular zone on the coast, you're around 18. They put in a, a much higher code in uh, Camille, but it was 13.2. That was supposed to be the 100-year flood level. Uh, it wasn't. And, uh, and had that been done at a higher level with enough authority to make it happen, uh, Camille would have been a different ball game. So, so first is the issue of implementation, and then there's enforcement. And it, it seems like, as of course, I've driven along the coast um, in in recent weeks and months, and and you got a lot of houses that are up on um, that are in fact elevated, and it looks like um, so that those regulations are being enforced. That didn't happen apparently after Camille. Is that right? It didn't, and some of it happened, and it happened with really a lot of duress. And there's a whole organization that was founded called the Coast Code Administration to try to implement that, uh, tried to implement the Florida codes to, with hurricane amendments, but uh, it was tough. And, and there were some places that didn't even have any codes. I personally remember making a talk at at a high school, and I thought I had to run out of there to save my skin because people were saying, you mean to tell us you're going to tell us what to do on our land? Well, it's times have changed, but it's uh, it's tough. It's in New Orleans, for example, I may be off track, but you protect by building a levee. Over here, there are no levees. We've got a railroad track, which really stopped Camille. But then you've got I-10, which is much higher and to some degree worked, but then the water came up. My house, personally, I live above I-10 at 18 and a half feet above sea level, and I got four feet of water when the water was going out, not when the surge was coming in. So there's so many little factors that people don't understand. It's just this big picture. The surge water is like a – most people think of a tidal wave. That's not – really the story was more the story of Katrina I mean yes not uh, I mean Camille not Katrina excuse me 
Paul, just just a question. Um, we had envisioned way back bef- the, uh, through the Emergency Council, which was a, a wonderful body of citizens and, and leaders, uh, of finding ways to cooperate among the communities and, and uh, counties, uh, whether it was through some kind of organization uh, such as the Tennessee Valley Authority or some other that could be a vehicle for, for coordinated regional effort. That didn't, that didn't fly. And, uh, in fact, it didn't fly after Katrina either. Now, that was the Gulf Regional District, if you remember right. the name. Yes. And it was a uh, pretty well put out thing. Uh, again, I think it was too broad, but it's uh, two entities adopted it, Loosedale and Waverly. Yeah. Nobody else did. And so it just, it, it took too long. And then I, I guess I'm not there, but it's, I've been involved in a few things. Had that, and you had a meeting with Danny Geis and Laz Quave and that type of people and locked them up in a room the week of the storm and said, we're not coming out of here till we have a plan. And in about three or four days, you'd have had something. And probably we would have had enough teeth in it to make it happen when people were in shock. But that, it's so hard. And that's, that's kind of, um, in a way, what happened after Katrina uh, in Mississippi. Um, New Orleans was more complicated. New Orleans was very complicated um, because there, the devastation was, of course, not from wind and not necessarily from surge, but from the, the um, breaking of the levees and from water just really kind of coming up um, inch by inch until it, it swamped uh, a large swath of the city, especially in the Ninth Ward, which is lower. Um, but in, in Mississippi, I remember these big meetings that were held in the hotel. I forget. I guess one it was the, the Broadwater. One of the casino. No, the, no, the uh, Broadwater was gone. We're talking about Katrina now, right? Yeah. It was in one of the casinos in Biloxi. Right. And, and, and there was this um, coming together of um, the key players uh, uh, to a significant extent. And, and the governor at that time was very instrumental in, in bringing people together. After Katrina. So, so guys, what from both of those experiences would you say are the key lessons learned? Because we, one thing we have figured out, I think people now after Katrina recognize that this is not a once in a lifetime situation. This is a, this is going to be more and more frequent. And, 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 and while a lot of people won't listen to the science, the science is saying, with climate change, with warmer oceans, with more moisture and heat in the air and so on, all of these factors are going to drive, of course, these flooding events that we're getting in New Orleans, for one thing. I don't know about how much this has been happening in Mississippi, but we keep getting these um, almost monthly uh, downpours that turn into flooding. Um, it, this is going to keep happening. So, so here you are, you're two guys who worked with two – um, major events. I, I worked on Katrina a lot in the planning. As I said, my key takeaway was that when you get the citizens involved, when you get residents involved and you bring them to the table, they know a lot more than leadership sometimes gives them credit for. And they bring a lot of wisdom and ideas and recommendations into the process. So that was my takeaway. What, what are your takeaways from a combination of Camille and Katrina? Because we got more to come. 
go ahead, sir. You've got to set doable things. You can talk about it and come up with wonderful plans and economic development and everything else. But there's so much uh, the economics of the thing, or whether it's short-term economics versus long-term economics. If we're going to talk about a couple of foot of uh, rise in the sea level and we're going to talk about more hurricanes and things like that, at least on the coast, you're not going to protect that with a levee or anything else. It's a simple solution. Just move north. And you build commercial buildings all along the the uh, the coast. The commercial buildings can take this water and this surge and all of that kind of stuff. There's ways to do that. To make a house do that, they can do it, but it's not too attractive. Now, over time, they've learned how to do that a little better. Some pretty good-looking houses are being built along the coast. But, again, they're 22 feet up in the air. And, uh, and if you don't do that, then the city is liable to losing, uh, not losing flood insurance, but making it cost more. Flood insurance is a rated thing. If you don't do it right, then uh, you don't follow the rules, and anybody doesn't follow the rules. I live at Diamond Head, and we have a trailer that's uh, set up to move in a hurricane that's the, uh, for the harbor master. And there's some contentions now about is the rules to move it done well enough, and if they don't do it, it could potentially hurt the insurance rate for the whole of Diamond Head. So those things are, are really different now, and it's a tough deal. Uh, Paul, uh, what you, do you, you think said, about the future? You, if I might just – so um, – uh, when you say the simple solution is migration, but migration is complicated, expensive, and then I watched people move out of St. Bernard Parish, out of um, out of uh, the Ninth Ward, out of parts of the city. New Orleans East. Uh, New Orleans East, up to the North Shore, or up around Baton Rouge, and and then I have a I have a stepdaughter and 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 stepson-in-law who moved from St. They lost their house in St. Bernard. They they moved up to Denham Springs. And guess what? When the Amit River flooded, ah. next thing you know, that was at their doorstep. So it, migration is complicated, too. But, but Paul, oh, what, do you see, what do you see the future? How do, you, how do you judge what needs to be done in the future to protect the Mississippi Gulf Coast and, for that matter, New Orleans? from these uh, recurring uh, uh, disasters? Well, in my mind, it's just what I said. I think that you can build commercial buildings and very expensive houses to take the surge, that that want to take the advantage of the view of the sound and that type of thing. But uh, we didn't have the structure, the infrastructure, to move north after uh, Camille, there was mud, uh, that's been done after Katrina and was being happened. Like you said, Bob, uh, the uh, going north of uh, uh, the interstate. Yes, interstate's roughly, if I remember right, about 19 feet of elevation. Yes, most of it, and, not uh, all of it. So yeah. you know, anything of a normal storm, a Camille didn't do anything north of an interstate. 
it, but uh, uh, Katrina was a whole different world, and it's uh, uh, so. And usually things broke up on the railroad track. No problem on the railroad after the railroad track. That doesn't. So where we go in the future? I think residences have to be built in safer places. Commercial. I don't know how you uh, do all of that. Paul, Paul, let me let me just ask you. So I'm the uh, little sort of conservation nature um, gal in the room, and uh, uh, why not? Why not? I, I, I'm still looking at some undeveloped natural land along the coast. Why not parks along there too? I mean, if you do nothing but commercial buildings, what is the coast? It's not. It's not the coast. Of 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 uh, you know in any kind of a natural way that would be attractive. So uh, I can see what you're saying about commercial buildings and uh, can withstand the pressure and uh, and real nice for the people who can afford very elegant buildings. But um, why not take some of that low lying area, especially in the green, and 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 why can't that be parks that everybody can enjoy the coast? Well, I agree. Uh, in fact, there was one talk back in the time of Camille, that they didn't move fast enough. Suppose a group of people had said, we are not going to rebuild south of, of Highway 90. That's the wrong route. We're not going to do it. And, and then, therefore, the whole coast would be wide open. Well, the economics of that, whatever they did, didn't move fast enough to make that happen. But, anyway, I agree with you totally, Gene, that uh, you know, and there are a lot of things that are happening that way, but it's uh, uh, the lands that are low, and uh, we just need to. It's being it's being driven by economics. Very few people would want to build a marshy land or anything like that that's close to the coast. Uh, I remember uh, Bob described it, but I remember. More after not Camille, but after Katrina, the point in Biloxi where you have on one side the the Sound and on the other side Biloxi Bay, and uh, I had the opportunity to go to Newport, Rhode Island, and speak to some churches that were raising money, and they said, "Well, what is your description?" I said, "Hiroshima." Yeah, that is all I could think of, and, and that was, and it was worse than. Camille, in a lot of senses, uh, there are good buildings that stood in Camille. Not, uh, you know, but you know. Anyway, it's a different ball game. It's a so you in, have to in your spots in, in New Orleans. On the other hand, <clears throat> after Katrina, when some people were talking about trying to incorporate green areas into the neighborhoods of the city. And the people who were recommending that were really thinking about trying to um, uh, take some of the lowest-lying areas out of uh, danger for people and also at the same time um, absorb water. Um, man, that stirred up one big hornet's nest, and everybody went kind of bonkers over that because they've said, oh, you're trying to keep us from coming back. So that idea would not work here. So, Tannen, you asked him about the future in Mississippi. What about New Orleans? What uh, you, You're well, always talking about how we're in danger of serious flooding, but, but what is what is the one of the key things that you can see that might be a recommendation going forward? Hey, Bob, let me interrupt just one thing real quick. I was in New Orleans when New Orleans East was developed. Yeah. 
I remember being at the Young Men's Business Club when that was proposed. And uh, But suppose New Orleans East had never been developed. It was nothing but a marsh. And uh, you never had New Orleans East, which in today's world would never be developed. And, yes. uh, and things like that. But see, we did things like that because the economics. So I'm going right. to get off of that. I just want no, to. No, but, but related to that, Paul, there's 25,000 acres of land in New Orleans East that has been reserved or conserved as a, um, a wildlife management area. So there is within New Orleans East, which is much bigger than that 25,000 acres, you have a significant uh, conservation uh, area. Uh, perhaps more of it should have been retained that way. But I want to mention one other thing we didn't say. The Secretary of the Navy, uh, former Governor of Mississippi, Ray Mabus, was tasked by the Obama administration to come up with a plan post-Katrina. And the Secretary of the Navy said, here's an opportunity to create a regional organization that can assist in these areas something like a TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, not to usurp the power of the local uh, designated uh, areas of, of, of cities and, and counties, but to provide additional support on a regional basis for cooperative financial assistance rather than just piecemeal uh, trying to provide funds as a particular uh, hardship is identified. So, gentlemen, there's also the reality of the fact that um, thousands of people uh, live in the east, um, yeah. uh, uh, live in St. Bernard, live in Plaquemines, um, live in low-lying areas, uh, uh, even on the North Shore and above that. Um, and, and, and we've got to be thinking about, um, you know, folks want to live in this area. It's culturally rich. It has a huge history. It's like nowhere else. In this country, at any rate, um, so uh, I, I don't think we're there yet. Quite but if frankly. you're going to be wiped out every five years, how do you deal with that? Okay, so I, I'm going to I'm going to leave that question on the table because I want to move on to the other um, anniversary that we have to talk about, and I'm going to ask Malik Rahim to uh, join us and. Um, uh, we're going to delve into that, and I'm going to ask you guys to come back and, and tell me where the thinking is going in terms of uh, these future solutions, because I haven't heard yet. I, 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 I got that we're in danger. I got that this is going to happen more often. What I don't have is what is the humane solution that enables people who have very powerful cultural ties to this area to say so but in mississippi it's a different matter and uh, paul we'll get with you this weekend we're going to be on the coast maybe, maybe. we can continue this conversation <laughs> i don't know if we're going to make sounds it out because the weather sounds threatening all right i enjoyed this conversation thank, thank you. you paul for calling in i really appreciate it very much um okay. uh and and uh I look forward to the to the continued conversation on this. Wonderful, wonderful. All right, so take care. We've 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 talked about now the um, anniversary of um, Camille, and of course we're only days away from the anniversary of uh, 
of of um, Katrina. Katrina on the 29th. I mean, the 29th is, um, I think, Thursday. So oh, um, it, it's it's making us think again, uh, of course, about um, how we have to we have to be a little bit smarter about the future. And I appreciate uh, Ted and you raising that question, but we I don't think I've heard an answer yet. You can stay with us if you want, because some of the things I think Malik is going to talk about, you may um, want to comment on as well. All right, so now we have Malik Rahim, and I gave Malik something to look at mm. when he was um, waiting for his turn to talk about an anniversary. This this anniversary is as devastating, but more so because we're talking about 300 years mm. as opposed to a couple of storms that, were, yes, were very devastating. But I picked up my... Um, the New York Times uh, newspaper this Sunday, and uh, there's a full page that is powerful. Mm-hmm. And at the top it says the 1619 Project. So the New York Times has taken on the issue of the history of slavery in America in a big way. So I recommend to anybody, I think you, it, it won't be as powerful online but unless you're really ambitious and you want to order the, a back paper, which mm. I actually recommend because this is so powerful, between the special section and the entire magazine section also addresses um, slavery uh, and, and, and its effect in so, on so much more. I have to admit, I have to c- characterize myself as profoundly naive in a way not to have seen some of the connections that are drawn in these articles. The, the article that really blew me away was an article that traces present-day capitalism to the methods of organizing and managing plantations and other workplaces where s- slaveholders kept slaves in a process to continuously up the productivity in order for them to make more money. And it, 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 I don't think you saw that story yet, but where do you see that one, Malik, where they talk about how the methods that were used on the plantation were incredibly uh, complex and sophisticated in getting every last um, drop of energy out of the people they owned. Mm-hmm. So... The front page says, we've got to tell the unvarnished truth. And under it is an advertisement for a slave sale at the St. Charles Hotel in New Orleans. And a lot of this history, which starts in Virginia, that's where the first ship landed in 1619. But in 1719, a ship lands in Algiers and um, in New Orleans, and uh, that's going to be the uh, the basis of the occasion of a lot of commemorating and memorializing about what happened. Um, and then you have literally 300 years of slavery to be followed by the long-term effects of it that don't go away anytime fast. Malik... Share with me your chief perception of what happened during 
and as a result of this long era of slavery in America? Well, first of all, I just would like to always give praise to the Most High for allowing me this opportunity to be here. Uh, when, as you stated, uh, we first, the first slaves came here in 1619. Yesterday was the 400th anniversary of it. Because they first arrived in Virginia on August the 20th, 1619. So it's the 400 year. Now we are celebrating Black August. Brought you a copy of it. Here's a copy of it for you too. In which we celebrating the 300 anniversary of uh, Africans being brought to Louisiana. I'm uh, not a, that much of a religious person as I am as I am a spiritual person. And uh you know, four and three is seven. And seven is a number of uh, completion. So we look at this as a completion of that period in our life and our existence. Mm. Uh, when Abbeville and Bienville first came here, you know, they didn't uh traveled here, you know, going through the the trials of most uh explorers at that time. They came here with a contention of slaves to do all the labor for them. Uh, we first arrived. You know, so when, when, when they celebrate the 300th anniversary of the West Bank, it is also our celebration of 300 years uh, of Africans also on the West Bank, which make the West Bank the oldest African community. In Louisiana, oh. you know, yeah. uh, that's uh, you know that's a part of it that have been lost. You know that we have been here consistently for the last three hundred years. Uh, even the name Algiers, because you know the West Bank had many names over the three hundred years, but when it was given the name Algiers, it was simply because a French dignitary came here and said that it remind him of Algiers. Of Algeria. Right, because, you know, before then it was known, mm -hmm. you know, the West Bank was known as, uh, at least what is now Algiers, as Slaughterhouse Point. Mm. You know, so again, you know, we have gone through many transitions. Uh you know, the first slaves, again, 
arrived in, uh, with Bienville and Iberville in 1619. But uh, it have always been those who resist, those who did not just became slaves in the oldest African community is your maroon community. And your maroon community uh, was established by by 17, uh, 24 through 29. Some people say 24, some people say 29 uh, was the year of the uh, the first maroon communities uh, started. Tell, to tell people uh, what that meant, because I, I don't think uh, as many people are familiar with that as, of course, we all are of, of slavery. Not that we understand it, but um, we certainly know about it. But well, you see, that's the reason why uh, when I looked at uh, the New York Times paper, you know, so much of our history have been lost. Uh, the average uh, African uh, child here in Louisiana don't even know what a maroon is. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's sad because many of their educators don't even know what a maroon was. A maroon was just a, a runaway slave, a slave that made a commitment that I would rather live and die in a bayou than to be the property of anyone. You know, and you had uh, basically two types of uh, maroons here in Louisiana. You had your grand maroon, and your grand maroon was one that said, I, I will not bow down, I, I would rather die in the bayou than to be a slave. Then you had your petty maroon. That was a, a one that was just ran off, maybe to, to visit a relative or somebody at, at another plantation, but had no intent of, uh, you know, of 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 of, of going of leaving forever. You know, now with a, a petty maroon, it was uh, basically, uh, you know, the punishment was a whipping. For a grand maroon, the punishment was death. You know, and so again, to make that commitment was a very big. Oh yes, in, oh in, yes. In the life of a, a oh, very big risk. Yeah. What do you have any idea? What percentage of people who committed to being grand maroons actually were ca- captured and killed? No one uh, would ever give the real uh, number, number mm-hmm. you know, but uh, your Grand Maroon community existed in uh, in Louisiana, especially from Lake Board, uh, Lake Pontchartrain, from what is called French Settlement, all the way over to Galliano. You know, uh, your Grand Maroon existed in this area for well over 200 years, you know, as a maroon community. Now, uh, that maroon community took up on uh, many different characteristics from the first with our uh, emergence with with the uh, Native American community, you know, and many people uh, say that when we 
uh, for Mardi Gras, uh, most of us, uh, you know, they celebrated uh, with your uh, so-called Mardi Gras Indians. You know? But we don't classify them as Mardi Gras Indians. We classify them as Maroons making that celebration because of, of uh, the story and the history of Juan Malo, who uh, led the largest uh, Maroon community in Louisiana. You know, for almost 20 years, the Spanish and the French tried to capture Juan Malo, and he was able to evade captivity by uh, using the tactics that is now celebrated uh, with your so-called Mardi Gras Indians. Your spy boy, your spy boy was the first person to go out to make sure it was safe. He was just a scout. Uh, your flag boy, your, it was uh, the reason why you had a flag boy, because if you uh, use drums, you'll give away your location. So they used uh, the flag as a mean of making sure that it was safe for the village to travel. You know, uh, so you had this, the first chief, the second chief, the third chief, and the role that they played. And, and this became the tactics that have been passed off all the way up until now. You know, but the history of it, of why they did it, you know, uh, some people say, well, hey, uh, some dresses uh, is, uh, with, with Indians. But it wasn't the idea that they was dressing as Indians. They was dressed in a manner that was conducive to survival in the bayou. You know? And that's the reason why they dressed that way. Now, yeah, they uh, learned what to use from the Native American, but they also put that African twist in it, you know. And then when, uh, you know, after uh, uh, the defeat of Napoleon and the Cajuns uh, came down here because, you know, at one time all the slave pens was over in what is called Algiers. You know, when the slaves first uh, came here. So that's where they were kept when they came off the ships before they were auctioned. They were quarantined in in the Algiers. You know, that's where they weeded out the sick. Uh, That's where they uh, call themselves breaking, uh, breaking uh, the slaves to to first to always bow down. That's the reason why right now, well. at many uh, of uh, the native uh, of this Mardi Gras celebration, it always led off with this song uh, that we refer to now as Indian Red, where they say we won't bow down, you know, and uh, that's because of the fact of those that say, well, I refuse to be that slave, I refuse to to be somebody's property. I, th- I think it's so interesting that. Um I came to you with the subject of slavery, mm-hmm. and we are talking about not the slavery but the resistance to it. Oh yes, this is this has been your focus oh, yes. in this conversation, and um, I, I want to 
jump ahead for a minute because I don't want to run out of time and not take this up. And we can double back to where you're talking about because this has been really right. informative for me because our cultural legacy here is so powerful. Mm. And I, I've been saying lately that I've it, it took me a while to really come up with this, but and other people know this, especially people who've lived there all their lives. I, I'm, mm. I'm not from here. I'm a transplant, although I've been mm. here for like, uh, let's see now. Uh, what am I going to admit to? <laughs> Over 40 years. Okay, so I think that uh, I'm, uh, I'm, no, I'm not a native, but I've been here a bit. Mm. But um, I, there's a lot that you've told me that I didn't understand. I was trying to understand better how it came about. But I, I've, I've, the, in, in New Orleans, I've been saying lately, the past is not past. It is very present. And this is something that is what's so characteristically different about New Orleans from many other places, that 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 cultural, those cultural roots are so alive. How do you account for that? Because of the fact how rooted we are. You know, uh, My grandmother uh, came from an area outside of Morgan City. It was called Volca Island. It was an island where slaves was kept. And we had to build that the type of uh, cohesiveness that others uh, have lost. I'm not saying that we was the only one with this. But we had to build it in order to survive, you know. And that cohesiveness have always kept us uh, going. So we had to learn from our past. We had to learn how to survive in the bayou, you know. I mean, uh, just for instance, the Cajuns. You know, I see a lot of Cajun uh, uh, swamp pictures on TV. But we the one who taught the Cajuns how to survive in the bayou. You know, some people might say, no, it was the Native American. You know, I I never argue with them about this because the Native Americans at that time looked upon the Cajuns as just French invaders. You know, as another part of the French invaders. They didn't come with no different language. They came here speaking the same language of those who had uh, conquered and, and took their land. So, uh, you know, they didn't want to teach them because they know the history. We teach them and they take it. But we had to do it in order to, uh, for our survival because in many uh, times we couldn't survive in the bayou without certain uh, uh, medicine, without certain products that we could not uh, openly go and get, but uh, we was able to trade it off with the Cajuns. And that's how uh, uh, when uh, when your buccaneers came and your pirates and everybody talk about Jean Lafitte and the Verrett Canal, how he came down from the Barataria to sell his wares in, in New Orleans and, and in Algiers, uh, he came as a buccaneer, and it was only two things that was an automatic sentence of debt, and that was to be a buccaneer or a grand maroon. 
So you had those two that merged together Ooh. and formed one of the first truly uh, uh, integrated communities at that time because uh, many of your Maroons became uh, buccaneers. You know, and and they uh, and they uh, spent most of their lives out at sea, and and, and it was always the the uh, the model or, or the or what you call the premise of 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 that entire thing. Hmm. It was uh, pray for pay. You know that it was what? Uh, equal for uh, for for pray for anything that you capture. Everybody got an equal uh, pay of it, you know. So you had this, you know. And so uh, we survived. That's the reason why uh, when Jefferson became president, he put that embargo over Haiti because at that time you had many Maroons or, or black buccaneers or black pirates that was constantly leaving New Orleans going to Haiti. So Back and in, forth. Right, right, so in yeah. order to break it, that's why mm-hmm. that embargo uh, was enforced. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to jump because we're going to run out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand just from a brief um, review of, of your personal history mm-hmm. that uh, that you were a Black Panther. Yes, yes. So I'll, this guy over here, listen yeah. to this. Tell him. Well, uh when, in 1968, when the Black Panthers decided to have a candidate for president, uh, there was a convention in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and yeah. they wanted people from all of the states to participate. And I was asked by some of my African-American neighbors if I would go to Ann Arbor uh, and become part of the Black Panther convention there. And I did, and it was an extraordinary experience, unfortunately, uh, the Panthers did not prevail in that election. Uh, it would have been a very different world had they. Oh yeah, if uh, that's when we ran uh, Eldridge Cleaver. I met Eldridge yeah, under the there. Peace and yeah. Freedom Party. Yes. You know, uh, but we also did the same thing. And uh, see, that's the reason why uh, J. Edgar Hoover classified the party as the greatest threat to national security. They tried to make it seem like it's because of the fact that we had a few guns, you know, but uh, the gun was basically for self-defense. But what became the crisis is the fact that we started getting involved in the political structure of this country. We was running candidates. We ran Elders Cleaver. Even though he didn't win, he he. It just the fact that he ran under a political party, uh, it scared, uh, the powers that be to the degree that out of fear they made, uh, the party. And then, uh, as you said in the 68 also came the Democratic Convention. Yeah. You know, and out of the Democratic Convention, uh, Bobby Seals just happened to be asked to come there to speak. And uh, he was arrested and, and charged with everybody else of inciting the riot, you know, which gave emergence to Fred Hampton, who, uh, who became one of the greatest uh, political leaders, uh, all the way to the degree that when we ran uh, Bobby for mayor of Oakland. Because, uh, you know, uh, one thing we knew we couldn't win, as for 
uh, elders becoming president. But we came so damn close to winning uh, Oakland, right. you know, and, 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 and uh, electing Bobby Seals as the first uh, black mayor of Oakland. Um, uh, I, I, I don't want to run out of time without making sure to let people know you about... You can always ask me to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I will. But um, I, I do want to uh, call people's attention to the commemoration of Black August that you have been celebrating yes. at the um, Black, Black Star, Star Cafe. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are, uh, it looks like there are um, two events... Uh, this has been going on all month, but it yeah. looks like you've got two events still coming up, one on the 23rd, yeah. and uh, um, let's that, see. That's Friday. Yes. We've been doing a Friday film festival of this month, what we call the Black August uh, Film Festival. And uh, this one says, welcome to New welcome Orleans, post Katrina yes. on the 23rd. Then on 8.30, it says, quote, the spook who sat by the door. That's the what last. That's the last uh, Friday of this month. Right. We're going to show that documentary. Yeah, we're uh-huh. showing that documentary. Uh, I mean, August 30th, right. Yeah, the spoke what, what is, So that's Friday a documentary. Door. Yes. No, that's a movie. That's a movie. What's that yeah. about? It's about uh, uh, the first so-called black in the, in the CIA and how he used those tactics and brought it back into the community and started teaching those uh, revolutionary tactics in the community. So uh, we're going to show, we're going to end it with, with it. But we also uh, participating on the 29th, uh, the celebration, uh, the 14th uh, year anniversary of, of, uh, of, of uh, Katrina. Of Katrina. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, Where, and is that taking place also with the Black Star Cafe? No, that's in the Night Ward. In the Ninth Ward, as it has been mm-hmm. for many years. Mm-hmm. Okay, before I go that, just tell me where is the Black Star Cafe exactly? The Black Star Cafe is on uh, Belleville, is on the corner of Belleville and Slidell in Algiers. It's right behind Berman uh, uh, Elementary uh, School. So also I understand, um, Malik, that um, uh, throughout 19 and, 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 of course, in 20 also, um, uh, Algiers is going to continue to commemorate and to memorialize um, slavery uh, in, in America as it developed oh, because yes. of Algiers' special role. Oh, yes, and the role that we have. Uh, when you mentioned that I was uh, uh, the head of the Louisiana chapter of the Black Panther Party, and uh, next year, in 2020, we'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary. Wow. So, uh, you know, that's a special year for us. But we are also uh, celebrating, uh, we had this year a celebration at Black Star Cafe uh, that the Honorable Marcus Garvey in, uh, in, in uh, August uh, of 1919, he established Black Star Line. So, and that was a shipping line that he established. Oh, okay, that's where so it, came it, from. it was a very spiritual day uh, last weekend. That at a time that uh, that uh, the Honorable Marcus Garvey was uh, organizing and founded 
the first black shipping line uh, uh, since in the aftermath of, uh, of, of uh, the Civil War, dig that uh, that we was uh, celebrating uh, his birthday at Black Star Cafe. I see that, and that's uh, and, and you had a celebration on August seventeenth. Yes. On that as well. Yes. I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, we, we just have so much more to talk about. Mm-hmm. And um, since this celebration is going to go on and this commemoration through uh, 2020, um, we're going to, we're going to have you back a few times. Oh, is that okay? Anytime. You don't mind coming across the bridge? I don't mind. You know how people over. are here about going on bridges. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's not <laughs> about going across bridges. I. Uh, I'm one that uh, very seldom travel on this side of the river. <laughs> you know, I am a complete West Bank. So, so this is what my husband and I say. We say when we go above Canal, we feel like we're going going to Texas. Yeah, well, because we say below Canal. Yeah, because I feel like it's uh, it's like leaving day going into night when I uh, take that ferry ride over here. Sometimes when I come over here, this is the the night. But uh, sometimes I come over here, this is the day. But it's a complete difference. Did you go to the convention in Ann Arbor? Cause, uh, no. Uh, oh, we're getting shut off. Yeah. <laughs> my, my friend Jazz in there, he, he's in charge. And when he starts the drums, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it, it's, it's time. So... Um, We'll, we'll come back uh, on that uh, and, and talk more about it. But yeah. um, thank you so much for coming oh, across you. the bridge. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and we'll, we're going to talk some more. Because, and and I, I, I do encourage you. I'll give you, um, I'll give you the website on this. Yes. Uh, but I, I, for all of you out there, go to uh, online to the New York Times, the 1619 Project. You're going to be blown away by some of the things that you read in there, I promise. Thank you both so much, um, and Paul Montoy also. And thank you, Blake Jones, without whom I couldn't do this show. He has made it uh, possible uh, by helping sponsor the show. And I don't uh, acknowledge that every show, so I wanted to make sure tonight that I did, because this was a special show. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you, you, Malik. Thank you, Tim.